Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Jones. Bowden. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four. And England have won the match. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket, just me, Simon Hughes, today. But we do have an intriguing interview coming up with Lewis Hatchett, who was born with a significant disability, but heroically overcame it to have a successful career with Sussex before becoming a mindfulness coach and podcaster. It's an amazing story and more of that shortly. But first, we should just consider the latest developments in county cricket. The approval of Colin Graves' mission to once again rescue Yorkshire and also today's story in the Daily Telegraph that the IPL's Delhi Capitals are poised to buy a stake in Hampshire. Both these stories are related, of course. It's all about the parlous state of county cricket's finances, its unsustainability and therefore need for external benefactors. The Yorkshire board last night unanimously approved their former chairman Colin Graves' offer to rescue the club from going bust with an immediate £1 million loan and a pledge for another £4 million from various investors. He'll resume as chairman and he says he'll also bring in Philip Hodson. Now, Philip Hodson is a brilliant man I've had a lot of dealings with who has done an amazing job as chairman of the MCC Foundation, the charity arm of the MCC, which has created and run over 70 cricket hubs around the country and overseas introducing cricket to underprivileged kids and transforming lives and inspiring communities all over the globe. It's a fantastic organisation, the MCC Foundation. And Philip Hobson, who was the chairman of that or still is the chairman of that, is coming in to help Yorkshire out as well. So providing the club members agree to his return, it'll be the second time Graves has ridden to Yorkshire's rescue. He first bailed the club out earlier this century and Yorkshire still owe the Graves Trust nearly £15 million, the main reason the county are on the brink of going bust. Although the compensation paid out to the 16 members of staff summarily sacked last year after the racism scandal and the £400,000 fine they were hit with by the Independent Cricket Discipline Commission in July have also contributed. Of course, there is disquiet about Graves' return, not least from the former player and whistleblower Azim Rafiq, who has called for Yorkshire's sponsors to take action and oppose this move, and he's actively challenging it himself. Yet it's hard to know what else Yorkshire can do. There's no other credible offer on the table, and surely Graves is a vastly superior option to former Newcastle owner and arch-asset stripper Mike Ashley, who tried to buy Headingley and lease it back to Yorkshire last summer. Graves was chairman of Yorkshire when Rafik was a player there, but denies being made aware of any racist behaviour at the club during that time and has never been charged with any misdemeanour nor mentioned in any of the investigations. In the summer, 
he was criticised by the ECB for describing discriminatory language as dressing room banter, though he did say it was unacceptable. Of course, it's totally unacceptable. We've all hopefully learned our lessons there and should have known before. And describing such language as banter is an albatross around Graves' neck. But he is passionate about Yorkshire and a smart businessman, so it must be worth giving him this opportunity to try and mend the broken image of the club. And it's a great club as well. Surely all of us want the best for Yorkshire and for it to be able to regain its prominence in the game. You might think it's akin to bringing in Liz Truss as Chancellor of the Exchequer to bring back Colin Graves, but surely he will make a better fist of it than Lord Camlish Patel, who after being piloted in as chairman during the racism scandal which Rafiq brought to light in 2021, almost immediately sacked 16 members of staff, mostly without consultation. Some of those coaches and staff members had never even met Azim Rafiq. And as a result of those knee-jerk sackings, the club owe hundreds of thousands of pounds in compensation. The whole affair has been horrendously mismanaged. There have been so many losers. And Yorkshire could learn from Essex, who have dealt with the whole racism and discrimination issues much more scrupulously. They allowed a High Court lawyer, Catherine Newton, to conduct a thorough and exhaustive investigation into the accusations made against the club, and she recently produced a 182-page report, having interviewed more than 50 people for it. She upheld claims that racist slurs like curry muncher and other unmentionable phrases had been used towards players of South Asian extraction, but at the same time she rejected suggestions that the releasing of three non-white players was discriminatory, She writes, for example, in her report, Having carefully considered all the evidence, including analysis of Player 2's chosen comparators, I did not believe the decision to release Player 2 was because of his race or religion. She makes 15 recommendations to the club, for example, urging all members of staff to do equality, diversity and inclusivity training, EDI training, to instigate diversity targets and improve reporting channels, and installed special prayer areas and designated food options like halal meat, for instance, for all creeds and ethnicities which the club are in the process of implementing. So at least some progress there, though, of course, so much more for all of us to do. Meanwhile, at Hampshire, perhaps a happier story, there is the story from Will McPherson in The Telegraph that Delhi Capitals are poised to buy a stake in the county, Hampshire is one of the three counties that are privately owned, the others are North Hants and Durham, and Rod Bransgrove, who recently stepped down as chairman, still owns 60% of the shares. So we'll see what happens, and Bransgrove himself describes the article as a big punt, privately anyway. But such a move by Delhi Capitals will give them a good foothold in the English game and be the first in the queue to buy shares in the 100-team Southern Brave, based at the Aegeus Bowl, and that's something that we'll see develop perhaps in the next few months as perhaps some of the 100 franchises go on sale. As Fred Truman might say, I just don't know what's going off out there. So anyway, back to Lewis Hatchett, who was a guest in the World's Best Cricket Club, our online members club, last night. Lewis was born with a rare condition, meaning he was missing important aspects of his body on one side, But through total determination, he made light of it to open the bowling for Sussex for a number of seasons and develop a second career as a mindfulness coach and a podcaster. His podcast is called Raising Your Game. And he's interviewed a number of really interesting characters, both from cricket and beyond. So this is a truly uplifting story of triumphing against the odds, which should leave us all marvelling at someone's sheer will and ambition. So I first asked Lewis what his rare condition was. It, to be fair, it still is. So it will never be a was. It will always be here. Um, so, yeah, for those who are listening, my condition, Poland syndrome, it's a fairly rare condition. It, the, the word Poland is nothing to do with the country. It's purely Alfred Poland, the guy that's, that discovered it. It is, a, it is no known cause as to why people get it. It's twice more common in men than it is in women. It, affects about 100, one in 100,000 people, and it manifests itself slightly differently 
to each person that gets it. So for me, it manifests itself in the sense that I'm missing my right pectoral muscle, two ribs that are directly behind it. So very bluntly, the only thing that's protecting my upper right portion of lung is skin. And if you fast forward to a professional cricket career facing Sean Tate and people like that, that are, that can break bones at, at best. If I genuinely just get hit by a ball in that area, it will, it will puncture my lung and kill me. So, um, I, I grew up, well, literally the day I was born, my parents were told that I wouldn't play any sport. My parents were told that I was the firstborn son. So dad eagerly wanting his firstborn son to be some sort of, some sort of uh, sporting hero. He just rushed to the doctor that delivered me and said like, cause the doctor actually, this is a very strange coincidence was that the doctor that delivered me actually diagnosed me because he knew what the condition was. It wasn't until 22 years later, I met another doctor that actually knew what it was. Like my GP never knew what it was. Many doctors I met, physios I met that ne never knew what it was. I just happened to have that doctor that delivered me knew what it was. And my dad rushed to him and said, like, well, can he play any sport? What can he do? What can, what's he going to be able to do? He's like, well, sorry, sir. He's not going to be able to play many sports. Won't be able to play uh, rugby. Won't be able to play a sport like cricket because he won't be able to turn his arm over and be a bowler. And um, I'd like to meet that guy actually now, which would be, hey, would be quite fun. So um, growing up, I then had a younger brother that was born 14 months later. And the condition is not hereditary, can't be passed on. I won't be able to pass it on. It's just purely a random thing that happens. It's, a, um, it's an impairment that just randomly happens at some stage. And we grew up like any, any normal two brothers would. I just wanted to beat the living shit out of Brad every time I wanted to do anything. I wanted to run, wanted to jump higher. I wanted to beat him at every sport we played. We played football, we played golf, played tennis. And then one day my granddad gives me a tennis ball and Brad a cricket bat and teaches us cricket in the garden. And then we used to get, we used to wait for CFAX to, to come on with all the county championship teams. And we would wait as we write down all the teams, team sheets. And then we'd go in the garden and pretend to be one team, the other. One of us would flip a coin to be Sussex because we were in Sussex and the other would have to be the opposition or we actually, mum and dad's mum's best friend is from Barbados. So we used to go back and forward to the Caribbean and Barbados. And I, I've actually always, <laughs> I thought I was going, I was had the chance to play for West Indies. I thought, okay, maybe I, when I grow up, I can play for West Indies because I used to be the West Indies as a kid all the time. Um, but we, we loved playing cricket in the garden. And then I went to a state school, so didn't have much cricket opportunity there. We didn't even have a cricket bat, not a team, anything. But I went to go, my dad would take us to go watch Brighton of Albion play football and then Sussex play cricket and just watching the games. And definitely, I would say back then, you straight after a game, you rush in on the field and almost the players hadn't come off the field and you could like rush up to them, grab their autographs. So for me, I used to see people like James Kirtley, Jason Lurie, um, Robin Martin Jenkins, Murray Goodwin, guys like that, where I'd like run on, try and get their autographs. And then my parents tell the story that I was at 14 years old and I was just sitting in a, in a restaurant and just smashed my fists on the table and said, right, that's it. I want to be a professional cricketer. And they sort of looked at each other and went, okay, how are you going to do that? And I was like, right, well, I want to get to a trial for Sussex. There's a county trial that I want to get to turn up to this trial and I've got kit that I bought out the Friday ad that was secondhand. And um, I've turned up and there's kids coming in from private schools that are bigger, stronger, taller, faster than me. They've got all the best equipment. They're, they're bowling fast. They're smashing the ball everywhere. And there's about hundred kids and they're picking the top 15. And I'm like, there's no way I can get in this setup. How the hell am I getting in? The I'm in the bottom 15, not in the top 15. So I decided in that moment to, to, uh, to do something that to try and stand out. And for me, that was to just ask questions. I couldn't stand out with ability, couldn't stand out physicality. The only way I could stand out was to do it with questions. And so I would just pester the coaches over and over again. I would ask them, how do I do this? How are they doing that? How can I get better here? What are they doing? Can you come help me sort of thing? And so if I pester them enough, maybe they'll think I've got a, a, an attitude and a mindset that they think is worthwhile that I want to get better. It comes to the day where, they're announcing the squad and it was, it's probably an email or text message now that you get, but right then it was right. Stand up. If you hear your name, come grab a cat. You're in the squad and they're going through like one, two, three, get to 10, 11, 13, 14, 
15, Lewis Hatchet, you're in. It's like, wow, awesome. Jump up, grab my kit. It's awesome. I've made the Sussex under 15 squad, but that season rolls round and you play like 10 fixtures. And those 10 fixtures every week, a team sheet would come in the post. And again, it's probably an email now, but like the team sheet would come and have a Sussex emblem stamped on the front. And I knew it was the team sheet and I'd run up, rip it open, be like, mum, dad, it's here. Open it to find out I was 14th man, 13th man. Never picked, always carrying the drinks. And I'd in week out, that would happen. And my dad could see that the frustration in me was that I wasn't getting selected. They didn't think I was any good, that I wasn't going to get a chance. And I was then presented with a phone and a telephone number by my dad saying, right, in order for you to stand out, you're going to have to do something a little bit different. So here's the number for the head coach of the men's squad. Uh, I want you to just call him up and see if you can go and be a net bowler tomorrow and go and train with them. And I was like, well, this guy doesn't know who I am and there's no chance I'm getting a gig here. So he's like, well, don't come out of that room until you've got an answer. So I was there in this room for like three hours, sweating, rehearsing lines, writing scripts, like thinking about what I was going to say, dialing the number, eventually plucked up the courage, punching the number and call up the coach and ask him. Who was I that? Which coach was Mark, it? Mark Robinson. Oh, Mark Robinson, yeah, yeah. Robbo, yeah. yeah. So I call up Robbo and say, hi, Mark, can I, could I possibly come and train with you guys tomorrow? Like, is it an opportunity? He's like, sorry, who's this? And I was like, Lewis Hatchett, a young bowler in the county. Like, can I come by? He's like, no, nah, we're all right. Cheers. <laughs> Puts the phone down. Uh, and oh. so I'm like, come out, disjointed, look at my dad going. He said, no, he goes, okay, cool. Next day, here's the phone, here's the number, call him again. They're training again. Same procedure, rewrite my lines, rewrite my script, sweat all again, there for hours. Call him up. Can I come and train tomorrow? Any chance? No, nah, we're all right. We're all good. Dad didn't work. He goes, okay, cool. Try again tomorrow. Same procedure. Wow. Just kept doing it. And then did it for weeks. Um, and then and tried different people, kept getting no's kept waiting and then eventually one day i'm just sitting there going this is the last fucking time i'm calling this number and and go hi it's lewis hatchet can i come and do you need a net bowler tomorrow they go yeah actually a couple of guys are injured can you be in tomorrow morning i was like hell yeah yeah i can so i mean the night before i was getting autographs off some of my heroes and then the next morning i'm stuck i'm in the changing room and i'm sort of in the in the county ground stuck to the wall through sheer fear like don't mess up don't do anything don't don't touch don't only speak when spoken to and I mean, at that time, like they, you turn up at nine o'clock and you're not sometimes not even required till about four o'clock in the afternoon to bowl at the 10, 11, 12 sort of thing. So, and that was my thing. I was like, well, I, I have no right being here for skill and ability, but what I want to do is I will literally sit in the corner. I will watch how some of the best do what they do and I will make mental notes. And then when I go home, I will go and do all that work myself. And so that's what I did. I just looked at how the best were doing what they were doing took it all on board and then I would literally go to school because I didn't have cricket at school so I'd have to do all my lessons at school I'd get home from school uh, I'd get taken straight to I'd either go to a local cricket net that was free to go to or I would go to my club at the time I'd go there and just practice I would be out running late at night trying to get myself fitter and I would and once they'd let me in to do that net bowling I just didn't stop I just turned up the next day so I was like I'm here we've let me in now you can't let get get rid of me but sadly i did it i was probably only about 60 kilos dripping wet and when i was 16 i felt a pain in my back and i'd actually fractured my spine straight away so i got a stress fracture my first stress fracture then and oh. uh because i wasn't on a system because i wasn't on the academy or anything like that i had to go see the nhs nhs took a little while to find it i love the nhs but it just took a little bit of time had to go into a back brace for six months. By that time, I'd spent a year out of cricket. And I knew that at that point, it was the first time my body had failed me. Now, I was, if I could say that, one thing that I never wanted was for my body and my condition to be a reason why no one could pick me. So I always saw myself on the back foot, but I knew that I could work harder than anyone else. So I didn't want my body to be the reason why they said, oh, we're not going to pick you because your condition, because your body and stuff like that. Skill was fine. Like, don't pick me on skill, but I can get better. But I wouldn't allow that. So whilst I was injured, I used to sneak into the gym at Sussex uh, late at night, and I would be hanging around the county ground for a long, long time. And I snuck in, and I would find who's, who was the fittest player in the squad, and I'd write down their training program, and then I'd go home and like do all of that work myself or do it in the gym, get permission to kind of do it there. 
and then eventually get fit. I'm 18 years old a year later and the season had ended. So I had to go, I decided to go off to Australia and go to uh, the Darren Lehman Academy in Adelaide. And that was fundamentally where a lot of things changed for me. But before I went away to Australia, I sat down with Robbo and I said, look, what do I need to do to be a pro? What do I need? What do I have to do? And he was like, is a long list. Like you're going to need a lot of ink in that pen. Well, the things you got changed. So wrote everything down. I went, cool. Cheers. Flew out to Adelaide in 2008. And I mean, Facebook was invented the year before. So there's no Instagram in selfie in telling everyone how good a time you're going. It's like, I'd send a text message and an email every now and then just to say I hadn't been killed by a spider. So <laughs> I would, I worked on that list. Came hardest I've ever worked, came back. Sussex saw that I was better bigger, stronger, but they'd been working with everyone in the UK. And so I was given the drinks and the towels and told to go and be in the second team. And I didn't want that. I knew I'd got better. I didn't want to be in that position. And so I did, that was when I sat down with the coaches and said, look, give me one month. It's a gamble, but the bet is I want to put a little ultimatum to you. And that is that if you let me open the bowling for the second team for one month in these three games that are coming up and I do well, let me carry on doing it. If I don't do well, I'll ride off into the sunset. And they were, at that time, they were basically making me fifth or sixth change bowler and I was running drinks most of the time. So they were like, right, okay, we'll take that deal. It's a pretty good deal. Three games, he might be gone after then. But those three games, I took 21 wickets and they were like, all right, shit, we've got to keep our end of the bargain. Did that for a couple more months. Robbo comes to me and says, we want you to jump on the bus with the first team, carry the drinks there. So then I'm, I was working in a smoked salmon factory trying to put petrol in my car at the time. So I quit that job, jumped in the, jumped on the bus, traveled around the, the country until we get to Uxbridge, which was an insane game. Like this game, I was, I had my autograph book ready for this game. Cause I was like, I'm going to be 12th man. I'm going to get some, I'm going to get some names on this one. And that half an hour before the start of that game against Middlesex, we, Yasser Arafat got injured. And half an hour before the game started, Robbo came up to me and said, here's your cap, here's your shirt, you're opening the bowling. First person you're bowling to is Andrew Strauss. Good luck. Ring mum and dad up, they're flying up the M25. So I'm standing at the next thing I know, I'm standing at the top of my run up about to bowl to Andrew Strauss. Haven't got a name and number on my shirt. They announced me to the crowd. I hear a bunch of people behind me going, who the hell's this guy? Look around, they're Sussex fans. They ain't got a clue where I was. And... <laughs> I, I just sort of ran, did my job. I ran in, bowled, did my job that game and took a couple of wickets each innings and moved on to the next game. Yas got fit, thought I was going to get dropped. They dropped someone else and kept me in and that game changed my life. I took a fifer in the first innings and I vividly remember coming off the field very, very happy having took a fifer and showered, changed. And then I was getting into this green car to get back to the hotel and Robbo came up to me and Robbo was the guy who had told me no for years. He was the guy that I'd rung up and he said, no, he was the guy who said, I'm going to go with these guys over here. We don't think you're ready. And he, he grabbed me by the shoulder and he said, we're going to offer you a three-year deal and you've done it. And that was, that was the day I turned pro and I looked and then it didn't really hit me. I was trying to be all macho at the time saying like, cheers. And I was, well, this is all right. But I remember I got in the car with, um, physio and the analyst at the time was a guy called Chris Pickett and Chris had seen me ever since I was 12 years old or 14 anywhere between 12 and 14 he'd seen me in the area knew my dad a little bit and Paul had been there throughout all of my injuries and it, no, nothing hit me until I was in the car and they're like Lewis how cool is that and, and I was like yeah yeah it's cool it's, I'm trying to be a, a tough 20 year old and they go no Lewis all of those guys that you were competing against all those guys that you were you were working trying to, to to compete against they they're not here you're still here you're the one that got your contract you're the one that achieved it and they just sort of gave me the sort of pat on the back i'm like well done mate like that's that's proper and um and yeah i that was that was the start of my career at sussex which was which was a lot of fun Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No website for details. Two questions. One, who did you uh, sort of admire and base your bowling on? Who did you kind of try and, and you know imitate or copy yeah. or whatever? And and also intriguingly you, you ended up being a left-handed batter mm. which means you were exposing the right side of your body much yeah. more than if you'd been a right-hand batter so how yeah. did you protect yourself and did you ever get hit yeah so to to so the first person so the person i replicated myself on initially was jason lurie which is no wonder why i had i, I took number five at sussex for that reason because jason had number five uh, we both have shaven heads. We look fairly similar. And I replicate a lot of my, my action on him initially. So if people look at things like my gather, when I'm gathering, I gather it similar, but probably a little bit quicker to how Jason gathers his. But then actually, I think that was early stage. And then once I realized I, was, I couldn't really swing the ball as massive as what Jason used to do with the balls that they had and things like that, it was yeah, incredible. But with the condition just to give people a little bit of insight so with that large muscle missing pectoral muscle and the two ribs obviously my lungs exposed but i also have muscles in my shoulder that have to do a job to compensate so i have a muscle on the front of my right shoulder that is two and a half times the size of the one on my left which pulls my scapula forward uh my traps on my right pretty much fire up every day to the point where i'll get a regular headache every day and i almost can't stop that so I do a lot of yoga and things like that to to help manage that. I'm big on my strength training, so I'm my own worst nightmare in that sense. But with batting, yes, my right side is facing the bowler, and I had a chest guard off essentially off the off the rack any shot that you would get. And on my debut, we bowled out Middlesex in the first day. And so we had about 10 overs at the end of the day to bat. And as I came off, Robbo came straight to me and he went, you're not watchman. And he didn't even look at anyone else. He just went, you're not watchman. And I knew he was testing me. It's payback for all the times you were phoning him. Yeah. But, but jokes on him because years earlier, I had sort of said to myself, okay, right. If I want to be a professional cricketer, what are the traits that I want to have in order to get there? What do I think I need to have to get there? And I based majority of my stuff on hard work and courage and bravery. So as soon as he turned to me and he said, I want you to do this, I want you to be a night watchman. You got Stephen Finn, who was at the peak of his powers at the time, like he was young, he was fired up, he was 90 mile an hour at the time. You got Ian O'Brien, who was going to do bowl from the other end. And I just went, yeah, cool. Went and grabbed my kit, put my pads on, padded up, wicket fell and I went in. And then next thing I'm getting a barrage from Finn, from O'Brien. Um, and I survived the night. Did they know, they knew about your situation, did they? So this is the other thing. No one knew about my condition. So I hid it from everyone. So no one knew. Only teammates, I hid it from a lot of my teammates, but very few would ask me questions about it. And when I was younger, I would get really protective of it. I remember Murray Goodwin making a comment about it early on. And obviously, Muzz was a hero of mine, but he'd make a comment about it. I laughed, and then, but then I'd like smoke him in a fitness test, and he'd be like, oh, shit, okay, this guy's pretty strong. So... There was no way this, that's what I mean. I, I'd never allowed them to have anything on me. So when it came to batting, I knew Robbo was testing me, but I was like, okay. So he knew then? He knew, did he? I reckon he knew. Yeah, he definitely, he would have known. Um, but they, no one really asked me about it or knew, no one knew that, for example, it was very difficult for me to try and catch a ball above my head, uh, all these different things, but they, they, they just wouldn't know. Hmm. Anyway, so... I do that night watchman job and then I did it well enough that I was then given that title. Any <laughs> game I played with a four-day team, I was night watchman. So God. I then, but it dictated how I trained. And so with my training, I wanted to make sure I was good at that job. So I would ask Robbo, Mark Davis to at training, 
come off about 18 yards and just try and hit me in the head. And one day Robo uh, Davo hit me and he hit me with the chest guard, but it was this flimsy thing that I'd got from a sh shot and I couldn't breathe for about a minute, faced a couple of balls, but I didn't take a breath. And I've, I've managed to get my breath back. And I was like, oh my God, that was the worst. It's like, I can't really describe it. It was almost like an erratic winding. It was really weird. It was like a, when you're winded, you just can't, you can't feel it's like constricted, but it was a very bizarre feeling. Anyway, luckily Mark Davis registered that I'd sort of, something happened. He goes, what happened there? And I said, well, you hit me and I couldn't really breathe for a minute or so. So, okay, well, what chest guard are you using? I was like, well, it's this piece of shit. And like, what do you think? I was, oh, that's no good. We'll have to find a way to do it. His wife was one of the physios sort of linked with the club. And he got me to talk to her. And luckily she knew some guy at uh, Brighton Hospital who did all of the casting for when you break your arm, right? And he was ex-military. And she got me in touch with him. And I went to go see him and he molded my body and he went, oh, I'm going to make you something awesome. <laughs> just this geezer of a fella, just, I'm going to make you something awesome. So molds, paper mache's my chest, takes this cast off. And then he's like, come back, see me in a week, come back. And he's like, made this thing. And he's like, shaped it and goes, how does that feel? Can you bat like that? So I'm playing a few shots in the, in the hospital. And then he goes, right, I'll cut that down. And then I'm, how much padding do you want? I was like, well, I'd like it to be comfortable, whatever it is. He goes, okay, I'll pad it out. So he makes it sing and it's awesome. It's really comfortable, molded to my chest. And I go, what's it? What's it made of? Like, what is this thing? Is it going to stop a ball? He goes, yeah, it's made of Kevlar. It will stop a bullet. <laughs> so, so I have a Kevlar chest guard that I get to bat with now that um, I then carried on for the next sort of four years using. In, in and did you actually use it even in the nets? I mean, presumably you had to be quite I, careful about when you wore it. If I play a charity game, I wear it. Yeah. And, and like, so didn't that arouse... No, that did, didn't that arouse certain kind of comment? No. Well, how many, how many, how many tail enders do you see wearing a chest guard? Right. Well, not in a not in a benefit match. Yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. But I think, I think if I was, I mean, I wouldn't really go when I was playing. I'm think I'm talking about when I was playing professionally. Um, if I was out in the middle in a in a in a first class match, no one really batted an eyelid. They go, it's a tail ender with a chest guard. Like yeah, it's pretty yeah. normal. It does sit slightly differently, but. For example, when I retired, I did. I had an article done in the Guardian by Ali Martin, and and Jack Chantry messaged me straight away that day that it came out. He was like, "Holy crap! Like I played against you how many times? I had no idea this was going on." And so, it, it, look, I just never wanted. I didn't care if people, if anyone knew. I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone would have ever used it against me because, like, why would they? At the end of the day, there's. So when I'm did you actually when did you actually can't start talking about it? 2016, the year I retired. Right. Yeah. So once once I, it'd probably be a bit different now if I was playing. I think you'd just you'd be really hard to to not talk about it now with social media. Do you know what I mean? I think it would be. I think also. I think you know. In a way, I think I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure people would be inspired by it actually, and um, uh, you know, there's this. I suppose you know, there's been this huge um growth hasn't there of disabled sport mm. and you know emphasis on you can do it kind of thing mm. whatever your disability may be mm. so th there are so many different kind of routes now to, to play and each one of them is inspiring in a way and and your story is is is, is brilliant I'm, i think it's it just shows what you can do with determination i suppose is that is that your message when you know when you do your podcasts and things. I presume that's kind of at the heart of it, really. Yeah. Well, most of my most of my work now is based around trying to make your mindset one of your greatest strengths. Mm. Because I think if you look at if you look at the world right now, if you look at Netflix that are putting out documentary after documentary in sport, whether it's Full Swing, whether it's Breakpoint, these the tennis documentary, they're pretty much mindset documentaries or psychology based documentaries. They just happen to be playing a sport. <laughs> that it, it's it's more the fact that you look at it and you go these these athletes that are talking they're all talking about the fact that it's their approach how they play the game because when you're at the top everyone's very similar and i say that cricket is slightly unique because of the level of skill that you have to have in order to play the game like there's such a unique and intricacy to each skill that you have there is 
there is an element where there can be people that are like outliers. They can be, uh, and I would say someone like a Joffre Archer, he's a complete outlier. Like he's just completely unique case. Mm. But to some degree, at first class level, the majority of guys are are similar. Batting technique probably doesn't matter too much. It is genuinely how you approach the game, how you approach it. And you talk about the first class county scene. Guys talk about it in a very deprecative way. They, they say that it's it's a treadmill. It's this treadmill that is just constant. There's the, and so that requires not only your physical fitness to get through it, but a mental toughness and a mental strength mm. to get through. And if you don't have that, or if you haven't even trained it, or if you haven't even considered that as adding it as a part of your game early on, then it will hit you like a train. It will genuinely hit you like a train. And I think you could argue, and I meet a lot of people now that say, oh, I was a part of X County second 11, and I had the opportunity of getting a, a contract and I didn't. And I always ask them like, what was it? And they go, well, I didn't believe in myself. I didn't, I didn't want to do the work. I didn't think I was good enough or whatever it might be. I had self-doubt. I, I wasn't... I had failures and I couldn't deal with it. And I was the, I was, or I was told I was the best and I became complacent. Mm. There's, there's loads of different things. I and must say, I must send you um, a, a link to uh, the film I made actually about England's 2019 World Cup win because um, one of the things we focused on in that tournament was when England had lost three games and they got to the match against India at Edgebaston, they had to win. Otherwise, they were out basically. And they all got together with the sports psychologist um, David Young. Yeah, so Young was my psychologist, was he? Well, I'll, we'll get we'll come to that actually in a minute. Um, but it, and David Young basically said, "Right, I, I want to get everybody in a room and find out how you're feeling." And Stokes, he was the first who spoke up and said, "I'm I'm I'm scared. I'm 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 fearing we're going to get knocked out here. I I don't want it to happen, but I'm fearing that we will. It will happen." And I, you know, I'm nervous about it. And all the other players found that very reassuring that a bloke like Stokes, who seemed totally bulletproof, was actually admitting to his own fears, if you like. And it it was a reassurance and a sort of lifting of a burden. And everyone else then was aired their own fears. And it was like sort of letting it fly away. I'm sure you use it, that technique yourself, but um it, it kind of banished those fears and they went out and played a an enterprising game left nothing in the in the in the tank and, and obviously you know blitzed India and then went on to win the tournament. Um, but I thought the young approach, David Young approach, was was very interesting. So we'll come to that. But I mean, just just to you know follow through the story. So you had what ten years? Did you? I think something six, like that. Six years. At Sussex, Sorry, six yeah. years was it? Right. Um, and and then you was the retirement you know planned? Did you have a another kind of idea afterwards or was it all kind of no, happened it sort of landed upon you 7th of july 2016 i was bowling in a second team game getting ready to play against pakistan um was very i was bowling some of the best i've ever bowled bowled a ball and then couldn't move and i had uh, refractured a a part of my spine that had actually shouldn't have fractured had multiple had had without me knowing had had multiple um micro fractures on it and then had a much worse fracture on it and so uh mri that night got told next morning gotta go see the dot surgeon surgeon looks at it and says this shouldn't be fracturing but it is it's repetitive this is not a case of if this is a case of when if you stay in the professional game and so our advice is that you you retire so that was the last day i played played for sussex and I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, the person that took my place in this, the Pakistan game was Joffre Archer. <laughs> that was his debut for Sussex. So me not playing gave him gave him his uh, his step and in. He'd but been pulled out of um, club cricket, hadn't he, for that? He'd literally been pulled out of club cricket, but we knew he was going to get pulled out at some stage. But um, yeah, that, so that was that was the end. And, and it's a tough place. Like anyone who, whether they they choose to retire, whether they... They get forced into retirement. It's it's a really challenging place because the reason I say that is that you have literally wrapped your whole identity up with being this one thing. You've wrapped my my entire goal focused mindset was towards being a cricketer. I achieved it. I was a cricketer. You asked me what I'm doing. I've got a tournament coming up. I've got training. I've got I'm working towards this. I'm trying to improve my average, whatever it might be. Everything is based around that, and then you get caught up in 
your self-worth and your self-identity being based on what you produce and your outcome and how you uh, and how you are valued in the world by by this one thing that you do and so when that's ripped away from you you're just left with this very existential question of who who are you what are you about who is lewis and i think very fortunately i had been practicing mindfulness and meditation leading up to it and i was like i said i had been doing yoga and that gave me the gateway to mindfulness meditation so i think my psychological and depressive sort of episode was cushioned a little bit by that because i had a bit more of an understanding of what i was going through and that actually led me to then go out to i actually flew out to hawaii to train as a as a teacher in both of those in both yoga and meditation and that was more of a self-discovery piece really for me that was more of a like right strip everything away that i think i was and actually go and figure out who i am and then come back and like try and place it all together um but also i come from a fairly entrepreneurial family so i i did have there was no leaving the sport and being like who are you going to work for it was always my parents were like what do you want to do in the world now what do you want to do then i started doing a bit of coaching and naturally people want to know how do you swing the ball how do you get pace how do you do this how do you get build your skill set but the questions then started changing from the kids and the people I was coaching to how do I overcome this challenge? How do I, how do I f- fear failure less? How do I build confidence? How do I, how do I get picked in this team? And I realized all the questions they were asking me were around mindset. And so I'd started the podcast. I flew out to Adelaide to go and play and coach for my team out in Adelaide, uh, who was the head coach was Carl Hooper. So me and Carl were working together for, for a year and a half. And whilst I was out there, I was just purely doing the podcast, having these conversations, recognizing that athletes were having the same sort of challenges or had similar pathways with this mindset and uh, challenges around their mental health or mental performance. And I thought, okay, well, while I'm getting paid to do keynote speeches and tell my story and while I get a pat on the back, I want to give back. I want to do some more. And so that led me now to my performance psychology masters and that was actually uh, the move that I did with that has been transformational because it's now really cemented in this is what I want to do and and the way I want to go about uh, my my world and and I don't want to become as I don't necessarily want to become a psychologist because I think there's actually still a bit of a stigma around the name for a lot of people and there was for me when I was playing it so my my branding now is mindset coaching and that seems to hit people with the right sound and it sounds stronger and my branding of mind strong seems to help people and, and seems to hit people right. And yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's now seems like I've had all these different things that I was doing after my career. And now it's culminated into, and ironically gone to the thing that I believed was my greatest strength personally. So it sort of crystallized a, a thought process in a way. And um, you said you were helped by David Young in some way. So what, what yeah. did he do with you? So, well, yeah, well, he didn't help me to, to begin with necessarily, but Youngie was our first psych and he was, it was like his, I think Sussex was his first placement when he started off and he, he then went from us, he went to uh, Middlesex, then he went to Watford Football Club, then he went to the ECB and now he's head of psychology at Man City. So he, he's a good guy, Youngie. And funny enough, my university, Bangor University, that 20, 2019 World Cup, there was a study done, uh, it was, it's called the Bell Study, and it was a two-year study they did on, on the England team about mental toughness leading into the World Cup. And Youngie partners with my university and my lecturers to do studies, and he initially did it with ECB, and now he's moved it to Man City. So I read that study, it was interesting, and some of the stuff they did to help the England team actually be mentally tougher. And it's really, you, you think like it's going to be some sort of, sort of Herculean thing that they do, but it's not, it's, it's almost really simplistic. And like what? Well, you think about what you said there about how Stokes has opened up and saying, I'm scared. While you may think that is like a massive thing that like, wow, what an amazing thing. It's just very simple that the guy is just telling you how he feels. <laughs> That's it. And you come to like this, you come to the way in which they, they did the study for, for building mental toughness. It's like we're going to make we're just going to make cha- training challenging. We're just going to make training a little bit more challenging, and we're going to do this through various different ways, and there'll be a consequence at the end. 
And you'll be so surprised at how many players, even in the professional game now, and I think this is really what makes the difference between those guys that are really elite at first class and into international and the guys that are then elite, but at first class level, but don't really ever break through. Right. And it tends to be down to what, how much they're, they're either structurally put setting out their training to really stress themselves and then push themselves to that level. I, I had James Taylor on my podcast, for example, and James, James's motto was train hard, play easy. And he would, he would set up, I remember, you remember when he faced uh, that incredible bowling lineup against South Africa? So the elite, I think it was his debut. Was it his debut that he, he maybe faced South Africa? But anyway, he had, he had Stain, Morkel, Philander, and I... Oh, that was the series when Peterson... That was it. Sort of him, and, him and Peterson sort of that, fell out, didn't they? That was it. That was it. So it was, it was pretty much that game. But he played for us. He played for us against Australia one year. Um, in a in a first class match to get prepped for to play against them, and he scored a hundred. But I remember just chatting to him, and the, then looking at him the way he trained, the way he trained was so far ahead of everyone else. Just the stress he put himself under, the willingness for it to be uncomfortable, and it's not doing it every training. It's not doing it every training, but you'll be really surprised at how many players that get to that top level just end up going through the motions because they kind of, they're there and they think that they can fall into the trap and think that a professional environment will carry you to your goals and dreams when actually it should be you doing that, but the environment helps either support you, challenge you and do many different things along the way. Look, there's, it's no surprise that, you know, Joe Root, Steve Smith, Marnus Labuschagne, hit more balls than anyone else. It's, it's not a coincidence. The game of cricket doesn't really give a shit about your feelings. You can't at any moment in a cricket match stand in the middle and go, oh, you know what? There's a bit too many people watching this. There's, can some of you turn around and can, do you mind bowling a little bit slower and do you mind stop hitting it that far? You can't wait for things to get easier. You have to make yourself stronger in that environment and adapt to it. And I think the same for life. And I think younger people really need to hear that and they really need to learn that and they're looking and they're seeking it as well they're actually they're mm. really seeking it they're really seeking guidance and how to's and how to get there and what do i do and you think cricket is is special in that sense because as a as a training mechanism because it's an individual sport within a team game so you're very much on the spot within the team environment you it's you against the bowler or it's you the bat you the bowler against the batsman do you think that provides, you know, various dimensions of a mental challenge? That for 100%. I also think the fact that cricket is a game of failure. And I think it's a game of high amounts of failure and self-doubt that can creep in along the way. So, so And, and the death, isn't it? When you're out, yeah. that's a, it's so final, terminal. And there's so many uncontrollables. So many uncontrollables. I'd almost go back to what I was saying about what some of the best players do. The best players is obvious this might sound is they control what they can control or they just don't get wrapped up in all the things that are uncontrollable like an umpire giving a bad decision the pitch being a little bit off the the them not feeling in or or batting under lights or something batting, you know, whatever it might be any excuse yeah. you could probably come up with they're usually an uncontrollable you'll probably hear it any player come up with a excuse is an uncontrollable so i think the fact that cricket <laughs> provides so much of that is such a great exponent to like how you can deal with life. The trouble is, is you do need people there to help support you and guide you through understanding what that game means and what that experience means, which has actually led me to my research this year, which is going to be based on perfectionism in sports teams. And it's all inspired by baseball. So I'm going to be studying what it is, what, what is the perceived, what is the perception of an athlete on a coach? dependent on their perfectionism, their level of perfectionism, basically saying, does a, is a coach asking a player to be perfect? I need you to be perfect. I need you to play this certain way. And if a, if a player believes they are asking them to do that, what's the impact on their fear of failure, their risk-taking, and what I've called performance autonomy, basically playing in the way that they want to play. And that, that for me is, if you can, sport has so, so many lessons that you can learn from that and, and, and and the environments that it creates that you can take elsewhere and no no better than cricket and and basketball i suppose 
a, a good um, maybe example of of how basball works. If 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 to echo what you said there is uh, the example of say Zach Crawley, who you know everyone was calling for him to be dropped because his average was twenty three, but McCullum said I I don't expect him to be consistent. I expect him to have an impact every so often, and he he was proved right, wasn't he? Yeah, and I, that took the pressure off Zach, I think. Yeah, that that's the thing. They they're not asking for these guys to be what the media would expect of them. And it's that's really a big part of it is as an as a player, as a coach, as anything, you 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 can only really control two things in your life, which are what you think of yourself and what you expect of yourself. And what you can expect of yourself is where you place your attention, your energy, your effort. Outside of that, you can't control other people's expectations, you can't control what people think of you you can't control all of that so the more time you spend worrying on that it's going to stress you and pull you away from what is important and i think mccullum has stripped them of worrying about all of that and just go worry about what you think of yourself and what you can expect of yourself outside that i'm not going to judge you we're not going to and even if the media make noise even if everyone out there is making noise people telling you to be dropped trust this process and we're seeing it and how how fun is it? Like it's, it's rejuvenating the the longer format of the game that we love. Very true, and don't we all love it as well? That's uh, Lewis Hatchet there uh, with some fascinating thoughts, and, and what an amazing experience! What a story! Uh, the achievements that he's managed to pull off in his life, thirty three years old, and uh, now a very successful second career. Uh, his podcast, as I mentioned, is called Raising Your Game. Um, lots of episodes there with quite a lot of cricketers featured, notably Joffrey Archer, James Taylor, James Bracey, Phil Salt, just looking down the list of, of, of his various podcasts, as well as people beyond sport as well and beyond cricket. So that's Lewis Hatchett's podcast. And his app is called Mind Strong Sport as well. So really, I suppose I, I perhaps wrongly described him as a mindfulness coach. He's more of a mindset coach in a way, and uh, he's doing a great job. So that's it for this week. A lot of interesting guests coming up on the World's Best Cricket Club, including Jack Brooks next week, uh, Oish Shah, and also Alex Tudor lined up for the rest of the month. Uh, you can get to the itinerary and join us if you go to worldsbestcc.com. It's all in aid of the Professional Cricketers Trust. So go to worldsbestcc.com and have a look at the guests we've got coming up. Simon Mann and I will be back next week to preview England's tour of India, which starts in about two weeks' time, so not long. We'll speak to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.